Welcome to Tisky Sour on what has been a very interesting day in British politics. The result of the first elimination ballot in the race to be the next Conservative leader and, unfortunately, the next Prime Minister. We'll talk you through the results and what we can learn from them tonight. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dahlia Gabriel to do so. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing well, Michael. It's so nice to have you back and seeing you healthy and well after your bout with COVID. I'm so pleased to be back in the studio. I feel so in control back in this chair with words in front of me, although it was quite fun guesting as a co-host. And we aren't just going to be talking about the Tory leadership tonight. We are also going to speak to an expert on the latest wave of COVID-19. And we're going to talk about a very surprising, pretty outrageous actually, admission from an American politician. Do wait for that. Tory MPs have today finished their first elimination ballot for their next leader and our next prime minister. These are the results. Rishi Sunak came out on top with 88. Penny Morden is next with 67 MPs backing her. Liz Truss on 50. Cami Badenoch on 40. Tom Tugendhat on 37. And Suella Braverman on 32. Now, the threshold to advance to the next round was 30, which means that Nadim Zahawi and Jeremy Hunt have both been knocked out. They only scored 25 and 18, respectively. Only 18 MPs backed Jeremy Hunt. Very interesting, puts Rishi Sunak out in front, though not necessarily by as large a margin as he would have liked. So I think it's probably to play for Rishi Sunak, Mordant and Truss. It's going to be interesting to see where the other candidates suggest their backers go to. That's where Tory MPs are at for now. But the contest will ultimately be decided by Conservative Party members. Here's what they are saying, according to polling by YouGov. They show Penny Morden way ahead as the members' favourite. 27% of Tory members want her to be the next Prime Minister. Kemi Badnock is on 15%, with Sunak third with 13%. Even more worrying for Sunak, though, is how he fares in any potential head-to-head battle. This is what matters as members will only be given a choice of two. According to this poll from YouGov, if Morden makes it to the final round, she would win against any candidate. In contrast, Rishi Sunak could only comfortably beat Jeremy Hunt, who is now out anyway. It's in this context that arch-Brexiteer Stephen Baker said this. Well, if you look at the results, it's not clear that either Rishi or Liz can do it from here. Rishi only got a quarter of the vote, and we know that Rishi amongst members is a loser. I mean, sorry, I like Rishi, but in amongst members, he'll lose to anyone. So even Rishi now, it's not guaranteed he gets into the last two, and if he does, he'll lose. So this competition, truthfully, is wide open when it comes to the members. You know, at the moment, people have thought it's a fait accompli, but the only fait accompli here really is that Rishi won't be prime minister despite getting a quarter of votes today. So super interesting. It gives this this race a really interesting dynamic that the current favourite among MPs seems as if he could get beaten by any candidate when it comes to the members. There's going to be a lot of strategising with MPs deciding who they want to go to the final two. They won't necessarily be judging it based on who their favourite candidate is, but who would be best to lose to Rishi Sunak if you're a Sunak supporter or who would be most likely to beat him if you don't like him. Or you can think of all the various strategizing that the various supporters of these camps and opponents of various MPs are going to be going through this evening. I should say the next round will be tomorrow. Um, So from now on, there will be a vote to get rid of one by one the lowest scoring candidate. So tomorrow we're expecting one candidate to get knocked out and so on. Penny Mordaunt, for her part, sounded relatively relaxed about coming second in the MP's first ballot. 
Thank you to everyone who has supported my campaign, whether you came to my launch this morning, whether you've interacted on our website. Thank you so much for all the wonderful messages you have sent. It means a great deal to me and my team. Thank you. And Morden will be pleased she is now the bookie's favourite to take the leadership. According to the Telegraph's tracker of odds across various bookmakers, Morden has an implied 60% chance of being the next Prime Minister. Sunak and Truss are both at around 20%. This dramatically changed after the release of that YouGov poll. So once it became apparent that she was by some margin the member's favourite, she is now looking like the favourite. But what would a Penny Mordaunt government offer? She launched her campaign this morning saying this. I think our party has lost its sense of self. If I can compare it to being in the Glastonbury audience when Paul McCartney was playing his set, we indulged all those new tunes, but what we really wanted was the good old stuff that we all knew the words to. Low tax, small state, personal responsibility. We need to get back to that because we've got some really serious challenges ahead. Now let's look at some of the challenges we do have ahead. The NHS is currently breaking. There are 6.5 million people on waiting lists for treatment, nearly 2.5 million more than there were at the start of the pandemic. On top of that, people can't get an appointment to see their GP. Moving on from the NHS, there are projected to be 2.1 million people on social housing waiting lists by the end of the year. And the average private rent is 15% higher than it was at the start of the pandemic. Are any of those going to be tackled by low taxes, personal responsibility and a small state? I think they might be exacerbated by that platform. That, of course, is just the slogan, though. Let's look in a bit more detail what Morden is proposing. From me, you're going to get a relentless focus on cost of living issues. I've already announced that on day one, we are going to slash VAT on fuel at the pump by half. And we are going to raise income tax thresholds for basic and middle income uh, earners in line with inflation. But we also need to extract more value. For example, through simplifying and reducing the cost of being tax compliant for our citizens and for business. And we need to get things to work better. I'm going to be putting power back into the hands of parents. We are going to create personal budgets to allow every child access to their entitlements to subsidised childcare at any time prior to them starting full-time school. And we are going to create some task forces to get a grip on the crisis and paralysis in accessing NHS services and dentists. And also and vitally, stagnation in house building. Fourthly, if we are really serious about levelling up, we cannot be limited in our ambition by what is in the Treasury's coffers. We have to get real about this. So I want to align government planning cycles with those of business and the charity sector, which are already aligned 
And that will give us huge opportunities to co-fund, to form partnerships, to do more for our citizens. And we need some national missions in this country that the whole country and every sector can get behind. And I also want to set up some social capital pots that MPs themselves can administer. You guys are best placed in your communities to spot those gaps and spot the opportunities. And I want to give you more agency to serve your communities. That last policy mention sounds like a bit of a bung to MPs. They're going to love the chance to have a pot of money to spend at their discretion. What better way to secure yourself some votes at the next general election? But unlike some of the other candidates in this race, Morden did speak about a bunch of topics that the public probably will care about. For example, slashing taxes on fuel might sound like a bad idea to me, given we face a climate crisis, but I imagine it would be popular with many. Morden also made interesting noises about being willing to spend more than the Treasury takes in taxes. Unlike other candidates in this race, she doesn't seem to be promising austerity 2.0. Dahlia, Morden claims she is the candidate Labour fears most. She now looks like the favourite. Do you think she's right? Do you think if she becomes Prime Minister, Labour are going to be pretty worried? Yeah, I do. I think that she is essentially the Johnsonism without Johnson candidate whereby on a very surface level, as Johnson did in 2019, she is offering the kind of program that will appeal to a p- the particular coalition uh, of voters that won Johnson that l- election uh, by a landslide. She is paying lip service to a more interventionist and investment-led approach uh, with the economy. I think the centering of the cost of living crisis, as opposed to a uh, sort of culture war issues, is the obvious strategy, but it's a strategy that the other candidates seem to have left very bizarrely to me. And in an article that she wrote for The Telegraph today, which is a very interesting thing to look at because it's obviously her talking very directly to the conservative base that will be voting in these elections. She talked about things like generating 3 million green jobs by 2030. She talked about an economic policy that wasn't just about tax cuts which is the bulk of what we're seeing from from the other candidates. And although wholly insubstantial, she was talking about at least some support during the cost of living crisis, which contrasts very starkly with the likes of Braverman and others who are peddling the kind of old age, you know, too many people on benefits form of Toryism. That is far closer to the parts of Johnson's package that won him that landslide. He nicked the idea of the Green Industrial Revolution and sort of ran with that. He gave very vague platitudes about levelling up that were people thought meant more infrastructural investment, but actually didn't mean that at all. And of course, like, like Johnson, what she is committing to is not only completely insufficient and non-specific. But when you read in the small print, it's actually a lot of what she's calling investment or like freeing up capital for local services and childcare, et cetera. It's actually what she means by that is creating space for the private sector to ransack local government budgets and remits uh, in order to basically make these essential needs into an asset class. But also like Johnson, she's not going to deliver on it. You know, these are policies that even though they are incredibly conservative in terms of what we need to tackle the cost of living crisis. They are simply not a program that a Tory government will realistically deliver in the same way that Boris Johnson did not deliver 
on those promises that were popular, particularly with red wall voters. But that is what she's pitching towards. And that, I think, is very smart. And I think that she doesn't also have the associations with the sleaziness and the worst excesses of the Johnson era in a way that, you know, Sunak or Liz Truss has. She's she's kind of relatively clean when it comes to that. So she's able to kind of take some of the things that really won Johnson a lot of support while shaking off the things that made Johnson very unpopular. And I think that combination of things makes her a very big threat to Starmer. And it's Starmer's fault because throughout Johnson's tenure, Starmer pitched his opposition not at the meat of conservatism, not at the systemic position of the Conservative Party and the root ideology of the Conservative Party. Rather, he pitched it towards the personal flaws of Boris Johnson, you know, which was the easy hit because his flaws are plentiful and they're dramatic. But ultimately, what Starmer has pitched himself as is essentially a conservative, but with more decorum. And that's what Penny Morden is. And that's why that strategy was always going to fail. When you have a candidate like Morden, who is essentially, at least on the surface, offering, you know, I'm essentially still a conservative. I'll put a little bit of investment here and there, or I'll use investment as a code word for, you know, privatization. And I have decorum and I'm, you know, a, a disciplined media operator, then that just takes the wind out of uh, Starmer's sail. And so essentially, Starmer's entire attack strategy, if Penny Mordaunt becomes the leader of the Tory party, evaporates overnight because it was so pinned to personal dislike for Boris Johnson, rather than a critique of Tory ideology and an offering of a radically alternative program to Tory ideology. So the months of missed opportunity that we've spoken about a lot on this show to really expand the imagination of what the British government can do during these overlapping crises that we face, climate crisis, health crisis, financial crisis, that makes him very vulnerable to Mordaunt. Not because Mordaunt is genuinely offering something unbeatable, but because Starmer's strategy itself was weak and doomed from the beginning. That's really interesting, actually, thinking of Morden as the continuity candidate, because as we're going to talk about slightly later um, in in the show, Liz Truss is being talked up as the continuity candidate because she's got some of Boris Johnson's sort of loudest cheerleaders backing her. But I think you're absolutely right, actually, when it comes to what they're saying about policy, Penny Morden is pitching to the exact same part of the electorate. It's going to be exactly the same as with Boris Johnson, where she says, oh, we want to build houses so that people can get on the housing ladder or so that we can tackle our housing crisis, just like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove in the levelling up department. They can discover, oh, wait, actually... All our donors are property developers and all our supporters are homeowners. So, oh, actually, maybe we can't build more houses. And instead, they just come up with some demand side reform, which essentially just puts up house prices more. Uh, I do think that's pretty spot on. And also, you know, that comparison with Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer said, we want politics without sleeves. We want politics that's competent and we want economic growth. That's basically what he's saying. Penny Morton's saying, we want politics that's competent, politics without sleeves, and we want economic growth. So they are now pitching to the exact same message. So I imagine the Labour will be pretty scared of her. Let's move on to the other candidates. So in the lead, after this first round ballot is Rishi Sunak. He launched his campaign yesterday and he revealed some big backers, Dominic Raab and Grant Shapps. He began on a diplomatic note. I want to talk about Boris Johnson. As candidates to replace him, we owe it to the British people who elected Boris as Prime Minister in 2019 
to explain why he is leaving office. There is something wrong about a process that sees a sitting prime minister replaced while the people doing the replacing pull the curtains and act like it's nobody's business but theirs. It's everybody's business. So let me tell you how I see it. Boris Johnson is one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. And whatever some commentators may say, he has a good heart. Did I disagree with him? Frequently. Is he flawed? Yes. And so are the rest of us. Was it no longer working? Yes. And that's why I resigned. But let me be clear. I will have no part in a rewriting of history that seeks to demonize Boris, exaggerate his faults, or deny his efforts. Yeah. I don't think we need to relitigate the details of Johnson's legacy, but let's just say this looked like the compulsory display of regret at having been forced to assassinate the last leader. He's saying um, it was for the good of the country. Potentially, it was because he wanted to be the next leader, but he's realised that maybe the members didn't like the fact that he went after Boris Johnson, who they were pretty keen on. Sunak quickly went on to the issue of policy. We need to have a grown-up conversation about the central policy question that all candidates have to answer in this election. Do you have a credible plan to protect our economy and get it growing? My message to the party and the country is simple. I have a plan to steer our economy through these headwinds. We need a return to traditional conservative economic values. And that means honesty and responsibility, not fairy tales. It, It is not credible to promise lots more spending and lower taxes. I had to make some of the most difficult choices of my life as Chancellor, in particular how to deal with our debt and borrowing after COVID. I have never hidden away from those. I certainly won't pretend now the choices I made and the things I voted for were somehow not necessary. And whilst that may be politically inconvenient for me, it is also the truth. As is the fact that once we've gripped inflation, I will get the tax burden down. It is a question of when, not if. Amongst the other contenders who've made it through to the second ballot, that was Rishi's USP. No to immediate tax cuts and no to immediate spending increases, even while the cost of living crisis consumes Britain. So he thought it would please the Tory faithful. It looks a lot like austerity to me, making the public suffer in order to balance the government's books as quickly as possible. And it also seems to have backfired. The membership doesn't seem to, in fact, like that at all. So that's what Sunak is offering. Dahlia, does opposition from members mean Sunak is already a dead duck in this race? Can we relax about Prime Minister Rishi? I think that he is pretty much out of the running. Making Rishi Sunak the leader of the Tory party would be a disaster for Conservatives. Um, He essentially has pissed every category of person off, particularly within the conservative base. For for the kind of diehard Johnsonites, for the people who really are attached to Johnson, he comes off as disloyal and someone who betrayed his, his former leader. 
to people who think that, who disliked Johnson and who think that the Conservatives need to really shake off their association with that era. He comes off as someone who stuck around for too long and was complicit. And especially, you know, when it comes to the partying, which was obviously one of the key things that brought Boris Johnson down, it's fairly safe to assume, allegedly, that he was aware that this was taking place and still decided to support the prime minister. And then when it comes to his program, to austerity fanatics like Jacob Rees-Mogg, I'm not joking here, but Jacob Rees-Mogg literally called him a socialist chancellor because of the furlough scheme. You know, he did something in the furlough scheme that no good neoliberal Tory is supposed to do, which is help out the working class ever so slightly, even if it doesn't directly serve the interests of capital, even though, you know, I would argue that keeping the workforce alive is in the interest of capital, but that's a whole different conversation. So to those, you know, he's kind of like a suspicious figure. And then to the people who rightly understand that the Tories need to at least give the impression of no longer supporting austerity, he is, in the way that he speaks, clearly an austerity conservative. And then to top that off, he's not a good media figure, comes off as awkward, he runs away easily, he comes off as cowardly. And I think that for a lot of people, you know, when they hear the name Rishi Sunak, all they think of is his wife's non-dom status and obscene wealth. So that as a combination, I think a lot of Tory MPs are wising up to the idea that that will not make for a popular prime minister uh, and it won't even make for a popular Tory leader amongst the Tory base. And what I find so interesting about this is that it really shows how engineered his original rise was. You know, if you cast your mind back to when he first became, and it really felt like, you know, this was going to be a popular, you know, future of the Tory party. He was getting all these puff pieces in the media. He seemed like this kind of slick operator in opposition to to Johnson. And he kind of gave off this impression of competence uh, and media savviness. And when put under the most minor of tests, he immediately collapses. When you reflect on that, those initial uh, few months, particularly during the furlough scheme of the way the media were hyping him up, it just goes to show how detached from reality uh, those puff pieces and those media cycles actually are. We're really interesting to see how this polling feeds back into these elimination battles because we've talked about the sort of politicians backing leaders based on whether or not they share their politics. But this is also obviously about politicians wanting to back a leader who they think might ultimately give them jobs if they win. Now, if people suddenly think there's no point in backing Rishi Sunak because if he gets to the final round, he's not going to win, so he's not going to be able to give you a job maybe people will start to say, oh, actually, the winner is Penny Morden. I want to back Penny Morden. It could be that people who want to back a winner go behind Penny Morden. People who want the party to swing to the right go behind Liz Truss. And while Rishi Sunak is ahead in his first round, I think it's really plausible that he doesn't make it into that final round if it looks like he doesn't have a path to victory. So that would be something to watch out for in the coming days. Penny Morden appears to be the favourite among Tory members in their leadership race, and Rishi Sunak is the favourite among MPs. But there's one candidate who might be best placed to navigate both groups of voters. Liz Truss came third in the first round of voting from Tory MPs, but it's more than possible that enough supporters of the other right-wing candidates will fall behind Truss for her to overtake Mordant. And YouGov have her on 59% against Sunak, who's on 
35%. There is also a powerful coalition of right-wing MPs uniting behind Trust. That's becoming ever more clear. It also seems she might have support of the outgoing Prime Minister. Here are Johnson loyalists Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Doris coming out for her. I've sat with Liz in Cabinet now for some time. Uh, I'm very aware that she's probably a stronger Brexiteer than both of us. She has consistently argued for low-tax policies. And I'm particularly concerned about the 14 million people who voted for a manifesto and voted for a government that the candidate that we select, and uh, for me it's, it's Liz who I'm going to back, will continue with those manifesto promises and will continue to deliver for the government and for the Conservative Party moving forward. Jacob? Well, thank you. Yes, I'm also going to be backing Liz Truss. Um, As Nadine said, I think she's as strong a Brexiteer as either of us is, and that's really important. She has been my strongest supporter in the Cabinet in getting Brexit opportunities. When we discussed taxation, Liz was always opposed to Rishi's higher taxes. That, again, is proper conservatism. And I think she's got the character to lead the party and the nation. Is Liz Truss the stop Rishi candidate? Liz Truss is the best candidate. That's what we're working for. She's a proper Eurosceptic. She'll deliver for the voters. And she believes in low taxation. Thank you, she's a woman. It's funny they're calling her the biggest Brexiteer, a bigger Brexiter than them, because Truss, in fact, supported Remain, a fact she's now keen to leave behind her. Trust has at least six other members of Johnson's cabinet behind her, including Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng, Work and Pension Secretary Therese Coffey, Secretary to the Treasury Simon Clark, and Education Secretary James Cleverly. And the Trust campaign is being quite aggressive when it comes to dissing Rishi Sunak. This was Jacob Rees-Mogg on Sky. Do you accept a cabinet post from Rishi Sunak? No, of course I wouldn't. I believe his behaviour towards Boris Johnson, his disloyalty means that I could not possibly support him. Um, and he wouldn't want me in his cabinet anyway. So it's entirely mutual? Oh, I'm sure it is, yes. <laughs> I don't think there'd be any question of him wanting me in his cabinet. But I couldn't support somebody who has been so disloyal to the current leader of the party. Rees Mogg also referred to Sunak as a, quote, much lamented socialist chancellor. That was for his high spending during the pandemic and subsequent tax rises. And the spectre of a treacherous socialist Tory party infiltrator emerges. The Mail's Dan Hodges has also reported this. One rival camp tells me Gavin Williamson, who is on Team Rishi, has organised the siphoning off of some votes to let Jeremy Hunt get over the threshold. To which Nadine Dorries replied, This is dirty tricks, a stitch up dark arts, take your pick. Team Rishi want the candidate they know they can definitely beat in the final two, and that is... Jeremy Hunt. Doris's attack line seems less plausible now that Hunt has been eliminated, but there's no doubt Sunak supporters will be desperately hoping someone vaguely beatable makes it to the final ballot, as well as, of course, getting Sunak on there as well. Dahlia, Truss seems capable of uniting the right flank of Conservative MPs. Could she be the next Prime Minister? First of all, I just... Every time Jeremy Hunt gets thrown under the bus during like Tory on Tory violence, it just makes me laugh because he really just has no mates in the party. Like he's constantly running for leader and constantly getting completely destroyed. I think it's not completely out of the question. I think, you know, when it when it became obvious that Johnson was done, uh, I actually thought it would be Liz Truss. I thought she was the most likely person to become leader. I think that she had enough name recognition amongst the base that people had 
had heard of her and she didn't seem like like too much of a wild card. Because let, let's not forget, you know, Johnson is, is very unpopular now. But up until quite recently, he was pretty popular amongst the Tory base. And so thanks to Starmer, part of his downfall was very much seen as a personal issue with him rather than a political issue or an ideological issue. So I felt like the fact that she had that kind of name recognition and that sort of association with Johnsonism, but had somehow managed to stay pretty clean during a lot of the scandals that brought about Johnson's downfall, I thought that would be quite an effective uh, formula. And obviously, you know, it's no secret that she has been thinking about running for a long time. She's probably spent a lot of time cultivating relationships with MPs in the anticipation that when this moment came, she would she would seize it. So at the moment, she's actually not doing uh, as well as I would expect. And I think that in a sense, having the two nuttiest sort of members of the Johnson government, uh, Nadine Doris and Jacob Rees-Mogg backing you is actually more of a liability. But I do, and I think that Morden is more effectively filling that kind of Johnsonism without Johnson position. But I think that there's every chance, you know, now that uh, the first indications of what might happen and, you know, who the key players are in the race, uh, now that that has become more apparent, um, it is possible that that the right wing will consolidate around her. But I actually think it's less likely now than it was at the beginning of this race. She's kind of the wild card one. I think she is also the one who Labour would most like to win. Because, I mean, Liz Truss is an unconvincing politician. I think if she wins this contest, Keir Starmer will be the next Prime Minister. I think if Penny Morden wins, Keir Starmer's going to be worried. And I think if Rishi Sunak wins, it's, you know, 50-50. So I, I, I suppose it depends potentially on how much Conservative MPs want to keep their seats if they let her go into the final round. Let's go to our next story. The UK has passed a grim milestone. We have over 200,000 deaths involving COVID-19. That data is from the Office for National Statistics, which includes in their number anyone for whom COVID was mentioned on a death certificate. The figure means the UK has the highest absolute death toll in Europe, and the UK's death rate from COVID is higher than France, Germany and Spain. The death rate was even worse, though, in Italy and much of Eastern Europe. As this milestone was reached, overall COVID cases have risen dramatically in Britain. According to projections from the ONS, in the week ending the 29th of June, one in 25 people would have tested positive for COVID. That translates to 2.7 million people across the UK, which was still below the peaks from March this year and from last Christmas. The December peak was due to the original Omicron variant in March. It was due to BA2, and this current wave is being driven by the BA5 variant of Omicron. As you'll have been able to tell by those dates, the ONS data always comes with a time lag. The Zoe app, though, although less precise, does not. Their estimate is based on people tracking symptoms in real time. And they estimate 4.5 million people currently have COVID in Britain. That's close to the March peak and looks set to overtake it by some margin. Indeed, Zoe predict there are currently 350,000 people currently getting infected every day, the highest daily figure they have ever predicted or projected. So does any of this matter? Well, the increase in infections is already converting into a spike in hospital admissions. These are running at about 2,000 per day. Though according to Professor David Spiegelhalter, the majority of these represent people who were admitted to hospital with COVID 
as opposed to people who were admitted to hospital because of it. That doesn't mean, of course, this isn't still imposing a big burden on the NHS. To find out more about our current COVID predicament, I spoke earlier to Professor Deenan Pillay, who chairs Independent SAGE. I started by asking him how worried he was about the spike in infections caused by BA5. As we've been saying for many, many, many months, this virus we now see can evolve, it does evolve, it it changes all the time. And uh, as expected, we're seeing new sub-variants of Omicron that are developing that do somewhat escape immunity that has been developed as a result of vaccines or previous infections. Now, of course, we have seen a significant reduction in hospitalizations and deaths to the pre-vaccine era back in 2020. Um, And we must never forget that vaccines are better than nothing and have shown to be that. But nevertheless, the virus is continuing to spread. And together with the fact that in the UK, our mitigations have been downgraded quite significantly, we're of course seeing not only the impact on illness, and there's a lot of infection around, nearing one in 10 people are being infected at the moment from Office of National Statistics uh, surveillance. But in in addition, that's causing a major knock-on impact on uh, essential services. As we have seen, we've seen in transport, in the health service, in education, all of these structures have been severely damaged by illness caused by this latest surge of infection. So the, the impact is very significant. And let's talk about one group of people who I think are particularly impacted by a high prevalence of COVID-19. So that's clinically vulnerable people, so potentially people who are immunocompromised or immunosuppressed. The government's response here seems to be to say, look, we're sending you out tests and we're sending you out antivirals. And the hope there is that if, if people take antivirals quick enough after they have contracted COVID, that should help them get through it in, you know, without serious consequences to their health. How significant are these antivirals? Do you think that is a a reasonable strategy when it comes to protecting clinically vulnerable people from COVID-19? Well, the antivirals that have been licensed are pretty effective, certainly not 100% effective, but the important thing is they need to be used very early on in the disease process. And that means really the ability to test, the ability to have access to those drugs and the ability to start those therapies, you know, almost as soon as symptoms start. But of course, the other side of the equation is, is limiting the risk of those vulnerable individuals being infected in the first place. And there's two ways to do that. First of all, is for those vulnerable ind- individuals to stay at home, in effect, not be out and about, not undertaking their work or social life or there being mitigations still in place in society. Uh, And if I was in that category, I would, for instance, be far more likely to go into a restaurant or a bar or a cinema if I knew that there were those mitigations in place, ventilation in place, masks being used to prevent spread of infection and so forth. So it's a double-pronged attack, really, here on um, on preventing risk to those individuals. And at the moment, we're really, society is ditching 
those mitigations that will make uh, environments safe. And therefore, we're depending, in my view, far too much on those individuals just being able to test and get access to therapy immediately. And, and we do know that that access program has not really been as successful as could be. Ventilation, I'm 100% with you. When it comes to the other ones, so I'm, I, I noticed you mentioned bars and restaurants and masks. I mean, it, it seems to me a little bit implausible that people will be wearing masks in bars and, and restaurants. So what mitigations at this point in time do you think strike the right balance? And which ones are we probably ready to move beyond? Well, uh, Michael, you mentioned about bars and restaurants. I'm thinking of social situations that uh, many individuals would like to take advantage of. And their, their masks are, in, particularly for staff, who are at risk. But, but of course, we've got to remember that the, the masks play the major role in stopping you, the mask wearer, transmitting to uh, someone else. So, um, and of course, staff are those people who will be in contact with large numbers of people. So I do think masks have a, have a, have a role, particularly for staff who are most likely to become infected and then spread to, to others. But of course, some of those mitigations that were present earlier on in the pandemic, spacing between people, making sure ventilation is, is, is adequate. Of course, now we're uh, putting the heat wave aside. We're in summer, so there's no you know, reason why there can't be encouragement to be outside where outdoor spaces exist around these social environments, or at least all windows and doors open. Of course, we previously have discussed about sort of mandating vaccines. And of course, there was the time that we had to show, you know, our vaccine uh, certificates. There is still a significant number of people, maybe 20% of over 75s, for instance, who've not had vaccines. We know that booster vaccines have not been taken up by all those who warrant them and who have been offered. And I do think we need to continue to consider as these numbers of infections go up, whether in fact some sort of easy to use regulation of mandating vaccine uptake and demonstrating that would be useful. But I always put myself in the shoes of someone who is vulnerable and thinking, I want to go out. What would make me feel safe going out or as safe as could be? And it's these sorts of things that I think will, um, will do the trick. I suppose a potential counter to that is the emphasis there on people feeling safe as opposed to actually being safe. Because I mean, if we're in a situation where one in 10 people have got this, if, if vaccines protect against severe disease, but they don't protect against sort of transmitting it, then how much safer would a vaccine passport make people in, say, a busy nightclub or, or a busy pub, even if you've got staff members wearing masks? You're right, as vaccines have a lesser of effect in terms of stopping infection and transmission, but clearly it, it does have some impact. But also, I think the key issue here is social awareness of risk. And, and obviously that needs to be, that needs to be stratified by the environment and, 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 and so forth. Just mandating something for universal use, I think, will be less less obvious. But this is a health and safety issue. Think of the sort of food safety that we expect when we go and buy something in a in a in in, in a restaurant. And all of those things heighten the awareness. And I think there's also about personal behaviour, which which, for instance, mask wearing, mask wearing in public spaces on public transport, heightens the awareness that there is the risk of transmission. 
And I think all of those things go towards, yes, not, not, not making it clear that this is a completely safe environment. There is no such thing as a completely safe environment, but it changes the way that we all maintain our social awareness of others. And I think that will help, as we've seen in the Far East um, and the sort of activities and behaviors in the Far East that we've seen, which have kept death rates very, very low. These are the sorts of behaviors that I think would be useful, not only now, but also in terms of a future pandemic-proof society. By contrast, of course, we're seeing that the government is, is wanting to get back to normal, live with COVID, all these phrases, which actually mean get back to pre-COVID times, almost like ignoring the fact that this, we, we've had this experience. Can we talk about long COVID? I've just recovered from from COVID myself. I have to say, I'm in a group where I'm lucky enough not to really worry um, about hospitalisation. I'm, I'm triple vaccinated and don't have any sort of particular comorbidities when it comes to COVID-19. The thing I was a bit worried about was long COVID. Will I, will I develop it? And what's your advice to someone who is triple vaccinated? What is the chance that they could develop long COVID? Because we see lots of numbers flying around. And obviously, the definitions of long COVID are also incredibly broad. So how would you make sense of that risk? Well, Michael, you, you, you've hit the nail on the head here, is that the definition of long COVID remains in discussion amongst scientists. And it's only now that we're really starting to see some big research projects underway, particularly in the UK, for trying to understand the precise risk and, and, and identify, of course, the different sorts of diseases, symptoms that go under the broad term long COVID. And it may be that long COVID actually is a constellation of different side effects and associated with different aspects of the infection. So we're at an early stage here. And that's really unfortunate because until that time, we we, we have reports of long manifestations of, of COVID many weeks and months after infection. And of course, we're hearing some pretty nasty stories, pretty horror stories from individuals who are really debilitated, whatever that debilitation may be. So at this stage, it remains uncertain in terms of putting an actual risk on there. Um, it looks like that vaccines, and of course, different age groups of vaccine, different age groups of individuals have themselves different risks of long COVID. And of course, long COVID, the, the risk of long COVID after a second and third infection may be different from a first infection. So all of these things are variables which make the, um, uh, make defining the risk difficult at this stage. But, um, nevertheless, having said that, there is good biological evidence now that COVID infection is associated with a whole range of derangements of, for instance, clotting of blood cell damage, which may um, uh, be associated with heart disease and disease of other organs, perhaps neurological deficits as well. The degree to which those are permanent versus reversible remain, of course, unclear. So these are, are real risks. And of course, it's a delicate balance between reassuring individuals such as yourself and I'm sorry you've you, I'm glad you've recovered from re- recent covid but there's a delicate balance between reassuring yourself for instance but at the same time understanding that long covid is a real uh, long-term consequence of allowing the virus to spread as we uh, I think we we're, we're seeing in the UK and therefore we do need to mitigate against that before we go on to our next story we should also say that right now we are running a fundraiser. For more on that, take a look at this. 
Mainstream media are fundamentally incapable of dealing with the most pressing issues facing society. Escalating living costs are plunging us into the greatest crisis in living memory. Wages are stagnant, workers' rights are being stripped, and the climate crisis barely makes the political agenda. Billionaire funders and advertising partnerships define what corporate media outlets do and don't cover. Their survival depends on pandering to the interests of their super-rich funders. But thanks to our supporters, Navarro Media is free to analyse what it takes to build a society that works for us all. We're free for all to access, free from ad partnerships, free from paywalls, and free from the influence of the super-rich. Over 100,000 of you visited NavarraMedia.com to watch, read, and listen to our journalism in the past month. Over 200,000 of you have subscribed to Navarro Media on YouTube, and we got over two and a half million views last month alone. Just 6,000 regular supporters have made this possible. Imagine what we could do with 10,000 of you backing us. Defy the mainstream and support independent media with integrity. Join our regular supporters and help us build our supporter base to 10,000 strong. Go to navaramedia.com forward slash support and donate anything you can from just one pound a month. We can't do this without you. So we set that target of 10,000 of you supporting us financially. We are just a few hundred people away from that. So thanks so much to everyone who has become a Navarra Media supporter so far. If you haven't already, then head to navaramedia.com slash support. You can find that link in the description. John Bolton is a senior Republican politician. He's a hawkish neocon who was a vocal proponent of the war in Iraq as George W. Bush's Under Secretary of State for Arms Control and Security. Later, he would become Bush's ambassador to the UN. Bolton was also Donald Trump's national security advisor from 2018 to 2019, but he's been around for a long time, having served in the administrations of Ronald Reagan and of George Bush Sr. It's a pedigree which makes this next clip very interesting indeed. With all due respect, uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Ultimately, he did unleash the rioters at the Capitol. As to that, there's no doubt. In 2019, Nicolas Maduro was re-elected president of Venezuela. In his book, The Room Where It Happened, Bolton reveals that the US then helped organize a coup against him. It was not a success. Maduro survived because the popular insurrection that Trump and Bolton tried to provoke simply never materialized. And that wasn't the only attempted Venezuelan coup Bolton was involved in. In 2002, Hugo Chavez, Venezuela's hugely popular president, was detained by elements in the army who falsely announced to the nation that he had resigned. Officials from the Bush administration had met the coup organizers just weeks before it took place. Like the coup against Maduro, that one failed, this time because a popular uprising emerged in support of the deposed president. Bolton has also been involved in coups in Haiti. During his stint in George Bush Sr.'s administration, the Americans helped overthrow Haiti's first democratically elected president. That was John Bertrand Aristide, a proponent of reparations from the US and France for their enslavement of the Haitian people. Aristide was first overthrown in 1991, but returned to power in 2001, before being deposed in 2004 by another US coup, this time with the involvement of the French. Bolton was then working for George Bush Jr. 
Finally, let's talk about Ronald Reagan. It was in his administration that Bolton first cut his teeth, first in the Agency for International Development and then in the Justice Department. And Ronald Reagan just loved international interference. Under his presidency, the US licensed itself to support anti-communist guerrilla movements and governments across the world, no matter how monstrous. That included support for successful coups and atrocities in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. During Bolton's time in government, the US has also provided covert or overt support for regime change in Chad, Grenada, Panama, Paraguay, and of course, Afghanistan and Iraq. And Bolton has also called for US-backed regime change in Iran, Cuba, Syria, Yemen, and North Korea. As far as we know, no coups were attempted in any of these countries during Bolton's professional life, But that doesn't mean they didn't happen. International statescraft is rarely done out in the open. Dahlia, US support for coups comes as no surprise to any of us, but should we be surprised they'll admit it so brazenly? I mean, it's almost as if he, you know, forgot that he wasn't chumming around with his fellow, you know, states people at his country club, but that he's actually on TV where we can all hear and see him. Because I think that talking about things like staging coup d'etats is probably incredibly normal, an open secret, as it were. And also, I think what's interesting is Jake Tapper, I believe he is, the presenter also seemingly not feeling the need to react uh, to that admission kind of shows how much of an open secret this is. And of course, as you've outlined, you know, this isn't the first time that a US politician has talked about staging coup d'etats in other countries or about engineering coups. It's just that before they used to call it regime change, and now they're actually calling it what it is. And I think, you know, whilst in a post-Iraq world, I do think that the idea that US intervention, militaristic intervention, is done in order to bring about democratic change, whilst I think that that no longer holds water amongst most people, in the West. And, you know, we shouldn't take for granted that as a progression because, you know, when the Iraq war happened, you know, it was very much a widely held belief that this was a sincere attempt to bring democracy to Iraq. I remember seeing, you know, a lot of uh, Arab experts, you know, Arab experts, both in the sense that they were experts in the Arab, in Arab politics and also themselves Arabs who were talking about, you know, this is as bad as Saddam Hussein is. This is a disaster. It will unleash sectarian violence. It's an oil war, etc. I remember them being told, you know, oh, you just you don't understand democracy, and that's why you're not in favor um, of this of this war. But I do think that even though that has been shaken quite a bit, that we still don't have a really thorough popular understanding that Iraq was not an exception, but was the rule, and that Iraq didn't. The Iraq war didn't go wrong. Uh, it was not a result of poor organization. It was actually the outcome of a perverse and, and violent political economic doctrine, which actually in many ways did deliver on its aims. It, it destabilized the region, making it easier for the US and multilateral financial institutions to consolidate power. It opened up Iraqi oil markets to Western oil companies. So I think that that, that framework of what Iraq was uh, is still not fully understood. And that is what 
Bolton is actually referencing here and why I think it will be so shocking to so many people, particularly those who haven't, you know, looked at these events from the perspective of those who are impacted by it. Ultimately, what that analysis is, is that it is the role of the US state, of the US military, of its political power to secure the interests of global capital around the world, to ensure that the conditions for neoliberalism around the world are well and thriving. And it does this by strangling democracy in the global South in particular, and it has done so all throughout its the past century. You know, this is part of a legacy that began in the post-colonial era when the British government, when the British Empire fell or weakened. Many of these states, many of the post-colonial states that, that now had this newfound self-determination uh, used that self-determination to experiment with different forms of socialism and with resisting the neoliberalization of the global economy. And the US's emergence as a global hegemon happened through their collaboration with capital and through which they mobilized, you know, in international finance institutions like the IMF, et cetera, in order to essentially force governments of the global South to liberalize their markets and to, to uh, discipline their populations to provide the low-wage workforces upon which our global economy relies. And when they couldn't force governments to do it, they replaced them through coup d'etats, or as they like to call it, regime change. That didn't begin with John Bolton. It's not an individual quirk of John Bolton. It is the organizing principle of our global political economy. And what I find particularly vile about that, particularly in the case of Iraq, is that it takes the, the kind of minor sense that people in the West might have that they want to help. You know, I think obviously the way the Iraq war was solved was, was sold to, to the Western public was very much mired in, in a particular form of benevolent racism, which sees, you know, populations of the global South as in need of saving by the West and, you know, that they can only be saved through violence, et cetera. So there was an underlying racism towards that. But there was also a grain of sense that, you know, oh, I actually care about the idea that people in Iraq have democracy. And, you know, a rid of Saddam Hussein, who, of course, was a despotic leader. So whilst it is underpinned by that form of racism, it's still, I still find it quite so sickening that that tiny grain of sense of I'm invested in what happens to people who live in a different country to me, which is now completely squashed, was taken and mobilized to such a depraved end is particularly disgusting for me. But I think what is really important to take from this clip is that the position that is being represented by John Bolton is not particular to John Bolton, but is the modus operandi of the US state and is how our global economy has actually functioned for the past 50 years, essentially. So I think that's a really important takeaway as much as easy as it is to overfocus on the absurd admission and the absurd way that it has been framed in this instance by John Bolton. I am literally melting at this point. So I think we're going to wrap up there. I'll just read one comment first. Rob Dude with a tenor, thank you so much. I finally got round to it. Supported, keep up the top work, all of you. Um, follow um, Rob Dude's example. Do become a supporter if you aren't already. You can do that at navaramedia.com forward slash support. Um, for now, Dahlia, it has been a pleasure being joined by you this evening. Likewise, Michael. <laughs> 
and it has been wonderful sitting back in this chair, communicating with you all in the usual way. I'm delighted to be back in the studio. So thank you for watching. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.